0: Your son Jesus Christ stands before us uh, day after day. As not just our Savior, but our teacher, our guide, our, our prophet, we'd ask that you would open our minds to him and what he says. In your son's name. Amen. Um, we are in Matthew twenty-three, it says that right at the top. Now Last week, because it was Easter, you know, and there we're we're looking at some passages that had to do with, you might say, an Easter mentality in us that that we think like the risen Christ thought in his gift to us that we become a servant to others. This is a, we know it was a Eastery because the the couple passages in Luke and. Is it Matthew someplace? Mark? Um, we're in the midst of the Passion Week. This is also very close in on that, late in Matthew. It's, um, well, Matthew 23. The, Matthew 24, the apocalyptic one, is the next chapter. And then the gathering together for the Passover is right after that. This is right up against it. And things are on the Lord's mind. He taught about a lot of things. But, you know, the being servant of all, I have the first few verses of the chapter on the left-hand side. Now, this is, you know, basic rules. Leslie and I were talking about hermeneutics because that's what the pastor and his wife talk about in our free time, in Bible interpretation. Uh, Because I've been talking to some people at the house regarding it. Uh, And some basic things that you should always bear in mind, that Scripture interprets Scripture, context interprets Scripture, intent interprets Scripture, and clear passages interpret obscure passages. Okay? You don't have the obscure ones interpret the clear ones, you know what the context is, and as you look at this portion of of uh, Matthew, um, the previous chapter twenty two, he's not just right up against the Passion Week; he's coming out of a uh, argument with the Sadducees in chapter twenty two, where the Sadducees, who are sort of Denying metaphysics as part of their existence, they don't believe in the afterlife, heaven and hell, etc. And Jesus is, you know, beating them about the head and shoulders, and he just he he really roughs up the Sadducees in chapter twenty-two. So the Pharisees hear about this, and so they ask him some questions and about what the greatest commandment was. And Christ comes back with the you know, these are the greatest commandments. And then at the first part of chapter 23, he commends the Pharisees. The Pharisees are like, oh, I don't know, the Baptists or the, you know, some denomination that you go, yeah, they are Christians. Whereas the Sadducees were like a, de- a denomination of Judaism you don't get to belong to. You don't get to deny the afterlife. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were conservatives. He said Jesus said to the crowds, this is on the left hand side of the sermon notes, and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe what they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach but do not practice. They bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by men, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and salutations in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men but you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher you are all brethren and call no man your father on earth for you have one father who is in heaven neither be called masters for you have one master the christ He who is greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now, he's saying a nice thing about as nice as he can get to the Pharisees. Yeah, they're on the right page. It's like you meeting some Christian who you don't really admire their life in Christ, but you're glad they're orthodox you know you're glad they're saying good and true things about god but there's something wrong with them there's some aspect of their their religion their religion hasn't actually started advocating falsehood and it ends with that bit that we covered last week that you humble yourself you'll be exalted it would be greatest among you, must be the servant of all. The reference, just in case you're wondering about the phylacteries or the fringes, those were legitimate parts of the law. The reference is there in Deuteronomy and Numbers. You can look them up on your own time. About uh, Binding the law of God to the frontlets of your eyes and to your hand. They took it really literally. The phylactery was binding bits of the law to their foreheads in a box which I don't know why none of you are doing that. Uh, clear teaching of scripture, the Jews of the day were doing it. Uh, but yeah, they, they literally tied little boxes with little fortune cookie bits of the law written inside the boxes. Um, and the fringes were commanded as part of their outfit. So they went to town on the fringes, the tassels on the corner of their robes. Because it's how you know you're a Christian Right? The length of your tassels. Well, you've probably been in churches where you know they dressed Christianly. Sometimes it's priesthood, you know, sometimes it's that kind of, you know, dress like somebody out of the Middle Ages, though it's two thousand twenty one, for heaven's sake. You don't wear a golden crusted miter anywhere in town. We know we do things like that. We know there are conservative ways of dressing. You know, I, we always called it, you know, fundamentalist thin black tie, right? The thin black tie, and you know, no color, no life. But Jesus wants you to wear a tie to church, so it's it's going to be. That's all it's going to be. If you had some splash of color on it, or <laughs> the road to Rome. We know these things happen. But I I, I removed that portion because that's um, not the centerpiece of what Jesus is going to do to the Pharisees. These are for the people that are in um, in our orthodoxy, in our faith. He has embraced the Pharisees and says, do what they say, just don't do what they do. They seem to be saying enough of the right thing, the scribes and the Pharisees. The Sadducees, different group. So on the right-hand side, where he starts in verse verse 13, and this goes through the end of the chapter. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut the kingdom of heaven against men you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in now you're going to see by the end of this passage christ has a very imminent reason for kicking them down a flight of stairs this is prophetic this is the end of the age But we can learn from it. We can look over their shoulders and go, okay, I don't want that to happen. Religious people function a certain way, and we can be into the same temptations. And one of the basic things, I was in a counseling situation yesterday, long distance phone call, about a person who um, didn't believe the scriptures. A person who claimed to be a Christian didn't believe the scriptures accused the writers of the scriptures of being sexists. And one of the things that I encourage people to regroup when they're dealing with somebody who has supposed doubts So often, those that doubt have no testimony at all of ever coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. They refuse to enter. They love being in the religious moment. They, they don't really even know there's a door to go through. They think you just join the organization. You check off the boxes about what is believed here. Who do you have to nod and bow and scrape to? The problem with these Pharisees and scribes, because they're the ones being recommended by Jesus, do what they say, they sit in Moses' seat, but not what they do. And what they do includes not entering the kingdom. It's one of the things, it's amazing how many people, we were discussing stupidity yesterday at Drones, uh, some economist out of Berkeley theory that the biggest problem in the world is people's stupidity and you cannot underestimate how stupid people are and how many there are and even Nobel laureates are stupid just this guy's theory is really cynical we sometimes fail to realize that not only are the people we Track with, like Pharisees, like the scribes, okay, oh, yeah, I can, I, I'm on board with you guys up to this point. Jesus Christ, I'm on board with you guys up to this point. We fail to realize that the, the, fail, the failure to enter into the grace of God is an epidemic of stupidity in the church. Just like too many people are stupid, too many people who claim to be Christians are not Christians. They fail to enter themselves. And then they keep other people from entering themselves too. And we saw this back in the Jesus people days. All the churches were flipping out. One, they wanted to get ahead of this and start playing guitar in their services. So young people would come because, you know, I don't know, that's cool burlap banners that said Maranatha on them. But a lot of times they would just be correcting, and those were the most liberal churches. Those were the churches that were already, you know, halfway to hell themselves, and they were trying to, you know, buy the youth with some claim of being into Jesus freaks. But the conservative churches, the one who were good Pharisees, were going, I don't know about this conversion stuff. You're taking this, we talk about being born again, but not like you guys. You're talking like you had an experience. Yeah. People were really getting saved. Religious people, when they fail in their religion, they're right in their doctrine, fail to have entered it by whatever, they don't know what they missed, they think that they're the normal religious person. They see anybody who has a greater spiritual experience than they have. They don't allow it. They don't allow you to have the experience. It's something to check in us. You know, we're not just we're not just here to. Uh, years ago, I preached on this passage, and it's such a satisfying passage. To, you know, you get to throw elbows and. Jesus Christ is pretty rough. Um, but he just stayed away for it for a few years. We're not here just to think about what they're doing wrong, whoever the Pharisees are, whoever the scribes are. We live here in Moscow, Idaho, in America, in a reasonably intact Christian community. We're part of it. We've got to be sure that we're not this part of it, we. The warnings, sure, are when you uh, read uh, The Great Divorce by Lewis about people going from hell to heaven and you read about their lives or you go, oh, my heavens, they're so bad. But it's really not so that you would believe that's what happens to people who have that problem. It's that you will recognize yourself having that problem. Do you know Jesus Christ? Have you failed to enter in. Do you get suspicious of people who have had a greater point of entry, a greater acknowledgement of entry? You want to stop them from setting the bar at actual entry, actual experience with Jesus Christ. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you traverse sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, You make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Like I said, the Lord is throwing some elbows. What's going on here? These are devoted people. They're evangelistic. They're they're going to New Guinea. They're going to Africa to make proselyte. (coughs) But remember, they did not enter themselves. I don't like people that did but they love to have you enter their particular stamp, their particular arrangement. They want you to become a Pharisee. They want you to become a Methodist. They want you to become a Baptist, a Presbyterian. They want you to become one of them. Because they don't know that you're supposed to become one with God. And they don't kind of like it when you do. And so... Since they're proselytizing to their group, you become, if you are so converted, you are twice as damned as they are. You, you it's like uh, Xeroxes. You remember back in the days when you Xerox things? I don't know if people still do or not. I, I might've just revealed my age. Um, if you Xerox to Xerox of a Xerox, you're gonna see some deterioration, quality of image. Doesn't pick up as much, and the person who was proselytized into Pharisaism, not because it was Pharisaism, Jesus seems to have a positive view of the Pharisees. There were people among the Pharisees who believed. It made good sense. Once Paul knew that Jesus was the Christ, he had to give up a lot of Pharisaism, but he was in, you might say, that thread. Of biblical belief. But when you don't, when it's the highest thing you can offer, when being a Methodist, a Baptist, whatever is the highest thing you can offer, the worst possible thing is to make a proselyte who is a child of it, because they're also children of hell. Now, one of the things I did on the left-hand side, because it, this goes through the woes to the Pharisees all the way down the page, and it's nice to think in the reverse, that when it says, woe to you, you don't enter yourselves, you keep other people from entering. Woe to you, when you get someone to enter, you have them enter your group, which is, just, which is hell on wheels. because we want that more than we want them to know God. So it's blessed when you go in yourself and you encourage others to go in. If if you want to take the reverse of the problem with the Pharisees, they don't go in to the kingdom and they keep others from doing it. You on the other hand should rejoice when you go into the kingdom and you encourage others to go into the kingdom. But not your kingdom. It's not your design. It's not all souls Christian. It's like we're, we're, we're not struggling with that. But we would want to say, let's start a, a, a PR campaign where we get to get people to come into this, make proselytes from all over the town. That would be nice if they came, but we're here to encourage people entering the kingdom of heaven because it's the problem when you think of people entering your group. All of the hellacious aspects of your group Become evident in your proselyte. They pick up all the worst things because you didn't introduce them to God. Are you willing to preach that which gives someone to God? God is the only thing to keep them from hell. What we would preach as a you know, what is it to be an all soulsian? Is that is that the right word? An all soulsian. Or is there some acronym, I S C C. We don't have a good name. Come up with a good name. Just, I mean, the Presbyterians, the Lutherans, they got something going on, you know. I know. We're not trying to introduce them to this group, we're introduce them to Christ. Christ will save them from hell they get introduced to your religious group, you just made them fit for hell. That's sort of, I know it's a negative view of your group, but your group alone, without Jesus Christ, without passing from death to life, is hell. And countless churches, you can see that. That their life, you're not looking around and seeing believers at every stage, seeking their God. You see the the structure of what Pharisaism was, being sold to people so that they're a good Pharisee. And you go, no, this isn't... If Pharisaism was all that God was looking for, he wouldn't have sent his son because Pharisaism was already here. Because that alone is just hell. Woe to you, blind guides, who say... If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. It's one of those little niceties the Pharisees would come up with. Oh, oh, that really didn't count. Or that did count. You didn't know it counted because you swore by the gold of the temple. You blind fools. For which is... That might be triggering a little bit. You know what? You probably remember the passage... um, When he's talking to uh, um, the uh, Jews in another spot um, about when the blind lead the blind, uh, blind guides uh, both, both fall into a ditch. That's what he's saying about them. You are guides. They're leading people you don't know where. We have got to find out as Christians where is the where we are going to be led, and who's going to lead us there, if it's not the blind guides. And he's and he's describing his image of their niceties, their precision about oath order. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that made the gift sacred? So he who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Now, what did he just do? One, it's not a lesson on how to swear, how to take vows. Matter of fact, Earlier in this very book, he told you not to do that. But he's telling you, one thing is certain, that the general, the top, is the most important. The general truth. It's the God who dwells in the temple. If I swear by the temple, I swear by the God who dwells in it. If I swear by... um, Heaven, I swear, by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. It's th- If I were to do these things, it's always top to bottom. All of it has to be present. I can't just single out a certain part and call that holy. Your world has got to be God's from top to bottom. Now, in case uh, that's in if Matthew 5 is... Uh, 33, Sermon on the Mount. Again, you have heard that it was said of men of old, you should not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So you don't really have the capability of separating out the religious parts of this life from your hair to the temple, from your hair to the creation itself. You can't wander around, you know, being more pious by pulling something more important. Just say yes. Just say no. Because your world is all God's. And so your word should always be one with integrity. You said yes. My word is my bond. <laughs> so he's not telling you in chapter 23, you know, why it's important to swear by him who dwells in the temple. He's saying, no, everything is together, folks. Everything is together. He had a sense of that in the next verse. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. He's not going to let you. You know what's really important is the Lord, and not his temple. What's really important is the Lord, and not his footstool, the earth. What's really important is justice, mercy, and faith, and not, you know, being faithful to your Jewish requirements. No, God said, don't do them all for heaven's sake, but understand that your religion has a top and a bottom as well. Your tithing, I know people who have not concerned themselves, now we I don't believe in tithing because it's Jewish law but but for those of you who do there are people who are strict about it. To themselves, 10%. They got this kind of magical, if I don't do it, if I don't do it the magic won't be working for me, you know. Whatever God is out there who's going to be blessing you about stuff, he doesn't see you write that check for 10% of your paycheck. And everything else in their life, they don't even think about Jesus Christ. Don't even think about him. Don't think about justice, mercy, and faith. Do not. But I cannot reverse it either. I cannot say, what's really important is my walk with Jesus. And you have to make sure those S's come out with enough sibilance My Jesus. Sound like a snake. Because this world is God's, and your generosity is God's. All of it, your yes, your no, you just covered everything. It's not that you don't have a temple and don't have a God and don't have anything to swear by. It's not that you don't have anybody to give to. You have things to give to and be generous to, whether you do it by tithing, whether you do it just by giving. You just don't get to put anything aside. He said these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You don't neglect the giving, but you better be sure justice, mercy, and faith are central to your being because your religion is top to bottom as well. I mean, you see that? I, I jotted down the Micah, It's the famous uh, passage, Micah 6, 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil, Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. We all know that passage. This is a consistent place of being that all of life is all of you, and all of you and all of life are God's. This is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is not a separate um dimension. This is the dimension in which we serve Jesus Christ. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and of the plate, but inside they are full of extortion and rapacity. You blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and of the plate that the outside also may be clean. That's Okay. You ever see a college student do dishes? It's not pleasant. They don't seem to understand things. They think, well, I rinsed the big chunks off. What you need to have happen is to do the dishes while Leslie is standing at your elbow. You will find out how hot the water better be, how much soap is going to be in it, what kind of sponge, Okay, you don't just get to use whatever because what's important here? What's important is not that I go through movements that are called washing, but that my plates are clean inside and out. I live with other people, it's not always the case that a dish will be pulled out of the cupboard clean because they are wicked residents. <laughs> Not you guys, of course. What's interesting to me as I looked at this, I said, okay, he gives kind of the same illustration. First, is washing the outside and inside of the cup. That's what you should be doing. And then the next one, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within, inwardly... But within they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to men. But within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. One of them is what you're about in you. What you're attending to in cleaning you. The other is about how you appear in the social mix of of apparent righteousness. When we appear outwardly righteous, when we think we appear outwardly righteous, it only kind of works when everybody in a particular group of purported Christians are acting the same way. The the caricature, the mimicry is is a constant. We know what the rules are and how to dress for it. What to put on, what kind of whitewash are you using? And I ended up with a sentence there on the left-hand side. Out is not what you ought, but what you are. Now I know that that, I apologize, I love sentences like that. Out is not what you ought, but what you are. Because too often when the outside of you is being driven by what you know you ought to look like, that's what you work at doing. Mimicking an ought, following a rule. And you're not really good at it. You don't really have the people who wrote the rule, the people who who offered you that explanation, gave you some ham-handed twice as fit for hell as they were sort of approach to it, look like a Christian in five easy lessons. Your outside is not what you ought, but what you are. If you cleanse the inside of the plate, you know, if you work at cleaning, I've known some people, though, Who could wash the inside of the plate and never even look at the outside of it and crud on the outside of the plate? Well, you don't eat out of that, so it's the real point. But usually you get into the water that deep, that hot, that much soap, that much sponge. Everything gets clean if you work at cleaning the inside. You can whitewash your tomb. Well, that's not even a good image. You can't even have... That image for the Christians, right? You're not a dead, you know, body inside rotting. You're alive. It's actually a mausoleum versus a house. A mausoleum can look like a house. A mausoleum can be, well, the famous mausoleum, named for mausolus, built by his wife on his death seven wonders of the world. We get the word mausoleum from the tomb of mausolus. Um, those things are like houses, right, for palaces. We're not that. What we are makes what is our outside be, not what we ought to be. We don't want to jump over the arness of it because those are the people who don't realize that they haven't entered themselves. They don't understand the kingdom of heaven. We do it to appear righteous before men. And usually that kind of caricature, that kind of mimicry, is uh, a cheap, uh, cheap mimicry. It, it's just enough to look like uh, religion. And um, it, it is, it's, it's annoying, unctuous sort of uh, spirituality. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. This is an interesting one. You build... The tombs of the prophets, and adorn the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we have lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify. And some you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. We have all sorts of religious places in our lives. Some of them are religious groups gathered around Orthodox doctrines that nobody gets saved in. They don't enter in and they disapprove of anybody who would. But they got Orthodox doctrine. They're all about growing the movement of the church, so they're seeking proselytes, and all they're doing is making people fit for hell. They don't see the sensibility of our God being God of all and everywhere, down from top to bottom, side to side, from the most important religious elements to the least important religious elements. He is your God. And so we pretend, we make it look, we wash the outside, we whitewash the tomb, so it's not even close anymore. The, the Sadducees were bad enough. The Pharisees could be commended. You could look at the church t- today and go, okay, yeah, there was inside the faith, but you see so many tombs. And so much of it is this little problem. Because not only is your righteousness from top to bottom, side to side, from then to now, it's from then to now. Primarily now. You got no, you got no prospect in the past. You weren't there. We were talking last night. Uh, Creed and Connor and Daniel and I were talking about Roman government. We got done with the conversation. We basically bemoaned the fact that the Romans hadn't called us and asked us how to run the Roman Empire. Well, we were born too late. Our good answers for Rome, Rome would never know about. You are not part of the past. You are not part, really, of the future. You're just right here. And we like to create, just like we whitewash the outside of the tomb, just like we say the things that are correct, we build up our relationship to the holy men of old to the point where if we did anything, if our ancestors did anything wrong to them, we say, oh, yeah, we wouldn't have done that. Oh, we would, some non-Christian says, well, what about the Crusades and the Inquisition? Oh, we would never do that. I wouldn't trust most of you, most of you, with a sword and me and my theology, okay? I would be dead so fast if you actually had, I've got this sword. And the authorities told me to make sure that nobody says anything wrong. Evan's saying something wrong. Now I, I, I should probably stop saying such wrong things, but and I apologize, but we are just like them. They were just like the people they said they were nothing like. The Christ says, the Christ says that you're just like you've already admitted that they are your fathers. And you're going to do the same thing. And no matter how much Christianity goes on, we sometimes look at certain centuries. Oh, the 1600s. And yeah, England, up. such a glorious <laughs> John Milton. Somebody's calling me. Oh, really? That church? You're not texting me? Okay. That would have been inappropriate. Um, And what I'm going to do, I hear there's buttons you can push. I'm going to push it. Um, How do you turn the noise off? There we go. Okay. All righty. No more interference. What I want you to be thinking about is that people look at the past as if it were just like your whitewash of who you are now, the, your view of the story you tell of the past and maybe of your eschatology and what's going to happen in the future, you try to make you a better person by the whole storyline. The you of now is the storyline. It is the only thing that exists. The story doesn't. The story is only a memory. It is a real memory, but it doesn't exist. And John Milton and Richard Baxter and all the great Christians of Long ago times, you just need to be sure that the you now would not burn them because we're tempted. Your synagogues persecute them, scourge them, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth. Jesus Christ loads up. This is where it becomes the eschatological thing that Christ is dealing with. And it walks right into chapter 24 about the Olivet Discourse. But this is how we know that the Babylon city, the, the whore of Babylon in, in Revelation, is Jerusalem. He says, all the righteous blood shed on earth upon you, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all this will come upon this generation in Revelation. It says when the uh, harlot of Babylon is destroyed (coughs) in chapter 18, verse 24, and in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and all who had been slain on earth. And then in verse 2 of chapter 19, he is avenged on her, the blood of his servants. Jesus Christ said, This generation of the Jews in Jerusalem was going to suffer for this, this crime, this crime of centuries. Gonna, they were going to fill up that which had already been done. They are like that. And we have to be sure that as we look on, now we're not eschatologically in the same place that they were. We're not uh, dealing with the same religious problems that they were. But if we're going to walk away with any teaching from our Lord, we say, I don't want to be that kind. Of citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Maybe it's to be sure I'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, where my God rules everything in my life, that when I wake up in the morning, it's everything in my life. From what I give to someone, to what I don't give to someone, to justice, mercy, and faith, to the is my life a mausoleum or is my life a house? We like the stories, we actually live out the stories not the way we would like to imagine ourselves. Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing the prophets and stoning those who were sent to you. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hand gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken and desolate for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a nice way to end the thought for us anyway, at least vaguely this. He did not preserve the Jew. Next chapter he says, This generation will not pass away before all these things take place. He annihilated Jerusalem. Jerusalem. The Romans tore it. Well, the next, well, the next verse. Where is this passage? What? Where am I? Matthew, chapter, end of chapter twenty-three. When I said, "Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord." The next verse: Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, "You see all these? Do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here." One stone upon another that will not be thrown down, and then he walks into the Olivet discourse. This is all going to be destroyed. He is not just laying into them. Not just uh, um, well, because of this kind of religion. This is not what we've, we've modeled ourselves on, you know, all the wickedness of religious people. You ever notice how the religious really never, ever pick on the sinners? They generally kill the prophets. They don't, you know, they generally don't round up all the prostitutes and the gamblers and put them to death. They round up all the heretics and put them to death. All the people of different religious sensibilities. And I don't think that other religions are true, but I also don't think Christians should be out killing them. When it tells us, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that's kind of the title for what I want you to sort of rinse out of this for you. We are are the Lord's people he wouldn't preserve the Jews. He won't preserve you. He warns you of that in Romans chapter 11. He says, we cut off the Jews because of unbelief. And you were grafted in as a Gentile for your belief. Don't think you won't be cut off too. And the Jews grafted back in if they believe. That our, our relationship with our God is our belief in our Lord Jesus Christ we said, "Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord." We want both the Lord and he who has come in his name. He won't. He won't take the people he had elected from Abraham on to be his people, his temple. Great books of the Bible, the Psalms, the Proverbs. Great kings, the Christ was one of these. People. And he still cut them off, destroyed them, and not one stone left on another. Our end is not going to be any better until we say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So find that Christ. Believe in that Christ. Seek those people who claim that Christ. Don't claim your doctrine. Don't claim to be a Pharisee with you. Don't claim to be a Baptist with you. Whatever it is you are, they, but those that have found Christ, and if they're something completely different than you, they're a Presbyterian, but they they say, "Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord," and they come in the name of the Lord. We can straighten out a lot of things in our own, but it should be about us, not about all of those religious people who are more obviously doing this. Are we doing this? Let's check. Thank you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we're grateful. We're subtle. We're invested in ourselves and the way we do things. We'd ask that we would learn to do things the way you would ask us to, that we would be real, top to bottom, for your kingdom and for your righteousness. In your son's name, amen.